Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today. I didn't know after last week if we double the church or half the church. So <laughs> congratulations coming back for our study on Song of Solomon, where we're learning about intimacy and God's plan and passion for that. And in doing so, again, there's going to be lots of application if you're not married or not looking for those kind of applications. Um, I had several times through the Bible you'll, in this book today, you'll see ways in which you understand God's love and just how relationships in general work as well. So again, thanks for being here. Secondly, I appreciate you grace you're giving me because I'm trying to tell you what this book means. And believe it or not, if anything, last week, I cut out 50% of the most detailed stuff. So what I'm trying to do is trying to give us language to have real conversations with our spouses, with our kids. Because having met with many, many couples over 30 plus years of ministry, 99% of them have never had an adult conversation about intimacy with their parents or anyone else. And I always tell couples, you're either going to learn how to talk about this in a healthy way, or I promise you, you're going to talk about it in an unhealthy way, which are many of the ways in which we're helping people when, you know, there's been some tragedy or bad decisions. So even the language choices I'm making, I'm trying to give you words that I hope could be words you could use and you're trying to dialogue with your spouses or even talk to your kids. And that's my goal here today. Quick reminder of where we are in the series uh, or where we're going. I've likened the entire uh, book, a piece of Hebrew poetry, to a wedding cake. That the whole book is mirrored, I believe, after a seven-day wedding feast. The first four chapters, they rhyme ideas. We covered day one, the challenge to keep love in marriage. Today we're going to cover chapter two and chapter three, or day two and day three, which includes new love in the garden of marriage and a dream sequence, overcoming fears of intimacy. And those chapters, one through four, rhyme with chapters five, six, seven, and eight. Same ideas, because Hebrew doesn't rhyme sounds like bat and cat, it rhymes ideas. And so the whole book is a giant piece of poetry and it helps us interpret different pieces and really points to the focal point of the book. So if you zoom all the way out, the entire book points to the center. God shows up only once in the center of the book and he basically sings to this couple while they're making love and says, drink my friends, oh drink, this is a gift I've given to you within the context of marriage. And then we're going to find out in the last week, unbelievable message, uh, if I do say so myself, uh, it's going to be on, uh, on day eight, which is the resurrection power in marriage. And all of a sudden, resurrection shows up, showing that the only way we can love our spouses the way they need is by depending on God and the resurrection power of Jesus. So as we look at that today, we're going to look at kind of a, another concept to build on, and that is going to be what is marriage for? I want to propose to you that marriage was designed by God to make you holy and happy. Everybody thinks they're basically a good person when they get married. And you are basically a good person as long as you get what you want. <laughs> Which is another way of saying selfishness. It's in the context of marriage you find out just how stubborn you can be, just how unteachable you can be, just how unflexible you can be. So God designed marriage to make us holy. We become holy like him. We love like him. We learn to be patient like him. Be holy as I am holy, First Peter tells us. And if you pursue holiness, you can get some happiness. If you pursue happiness, you rarely end up with holiness. So we want to talk about how to do that this morning. 
I did a wedding recently for some good friends and, and their daughter who I'd known since she was two or three years old, got married, and I got a chance to perform the ceremony. So right before the ceremony, they came up to me and said, Chad, can we ask you about the talk you're going to give? I said, sure. And I, I mentioned the, what I was going to do and what I was going to say. And the husband and wife, who I've known for many, many years, helped them through lots of real crisis in their marriage. They said, well, can we ask you to do something in that wedding talk? Sure, what do you want? Bring the storm. Bring the storm. Tell them how hard marriage is and how difficult marriage is and, and, and how it really challenged you. I said, what, do you think their wedding, that's the time to bring the storm? Maybe we could talk about the fact that marriage is also designed to make us happy, to, to bring joy and fulfillment, companionship. How about I, I talk about the happiness of marriage and I'll mention some parts about the holiness. Well, okay. So today I want to do both. Mar marriage is designed to make us holy. And, and this series will, is going to be fun, but it's also going to be challenging. Yet at the same time, it's also going to show how God designed relationships so that we can bless each other and be generous to people with our hearts, our souls, and even be generous with our bodies. So today I want to talk about three love habits to develop to make us holy. The first love habit comes out of where we left off last week in chapter 1. We need to keep fanning the flame. Not just woo our spouses to date, to get married, and then next I'm on to a new project. But to keep prioritizing, keep fanning the flame in the marriage. So as we move into day two, this chapter is really unique because it's some combination of daydreams or imagining or flashbacks. And that's why this book is so hard to outline because of just the poetry of it. So chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where we left off, there's this ongoing theme of searching and finding that comes back again over and over and over in the book. So she's talking, Mrs. Solomon, the voice of my beloved, behold he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping among the hills. My beloved, and she just keeps calling the one I love, my beloved, my beloved, my beloved. He's like a gazelle, man. He's like a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows and gazing through the lattice. Is he a stalker? No. <laughs> she, she's just picturing him coming down from the mountains. He notices her noticing him. Reminds me when I was trying to date my wife. She was a junior when I was a freshman in college. And I used to go to dinner three times to try and catch the time she'd be in the, in the, in the SDR. And eventually uh, I'd catch her at the right time. But I was a darkroom tech at the time. And, and uh, so I... My office was right near the dining room, so she didn't know I was going to dinner three times trying to catch her. But notice also this phrase she uses here is that he is her gazelle or young stag. He's got a spring in his step. This ends up becoming a very um, kind of pillow talk way that she talks to her husband later throughout their marriage. And it shows up over and over again. So she kind of calls him her young stag. Hey, young stag, you want to head over to the bedroom? So in this case, she's just kind of imagining him and... and, and one of the things that's important here is that they're not really talking about the bedroom yet. She's actually talking about how she wants her husband to notice her, to prioritize her, to want companionship with her. As you're going to see in the next verse, he really wants her to keep fanning the fame, keep pursuing her, keep wanting to show interest in her, which is what happens next. So next part of the verse. For my beloved spoke. So either she's remembering a time this happened or she's daydreaming that this is what she wants. I want my beloved, it's again, same word, to say to me, to keep pursuing me, to keep wooing me, to keep dating me, to say, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Hey, let's go out. Let's have a date night. Let's spend some time together. 
What are they going to do? Well, apparently, um, it's hiking time. He says, for the winter is past. It's been snowing. It's been kind of miserable to be outside. But now we look outside. The winter is gone. The rain is over. It's gone. The flowers are appearing on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And the idea here is that it's springtime. Hey, honey, why don't we go for a hike? Let's go enjoy the flowers. Let's go enjoy the time together. But really, whether this is a daydream or something she's remembering, it really speaks to her heart. She wants to continue to be pursued, not just in the bedroom. She wants to be pursued for her relationship and for her companionship. I've been married almost 30 years, and i got to tell you, it was not easy, but prioritizing a date night is one of the most important things you can do. I think my wife and I have been on a date over 30 years of marriage, probably twice a month that entire 30 years. And that is not easy to do with small kids and babysitters and all the hassles. But I'm telling you, you need that. Your spouse wants you to continue to pursue them and prioritize that and not be like, well, there's nothing else going on tonight. What do you want to do? <laughs> no, we want the people to want us. We want people to, to desire us, to, to want to listen to us, not just, all right, I'll put up with this for five minutes. So there's a real desire to keep fanning, keep wooing, not just check off the list and move on to the next thing. And this idea of, of the, the, the different seasons is here. We have the winter season and the spring season. And that's why God designed marriage like a pot. It's a pot of commitment, a permanent commitment we make to someone. It's within that permanent commitment where I say, I'm going to be with you for life, you're going to be with me for life, that love can go through its seasons. Because sometimes when you're in love with your spouse, it feels like summertime. It just couldn't be better. There's other times it feels like fall. Wow, it just doesn't feel like we're understanding each other. We're fighting about stuff. We're just misunderstanding each other. There's other seasons of marriage it feels like the winter. Oh, my goodness, are we going to make it? Did I marry the right person? No human being should ever think like this person thinks. And I married them. And you wonder if you're going to make it. And you wonder if, if things are ever going to get better. And then the spring comes. And in the context of that permanent commitment, new growth begins to occur. New, new smells and new beginnings. And you begin to find new rhythms for different seasons of life. So God designed marriage as a permanent commitment we make to each other. And, and to save uh, physical intimacy for that context because it's a permanent commitment so that love can go through its seasons. It's going to be times that it's fall, times it's winter, and then regrowth again. And it's kind of the idea he gets at here because he begins to describe all the things they're going to see. Let me tell you about our date night. Let me tell you what we're going to go hike and see. He says, we're going to go see the fig tree. And all this time of year, the fig tree has put forth their green figs. And the vines, their tender grapes. And two things here. Interesting thing about the fig tree is that in the Middle East... There's two different seasons, a rainy season, a very rainy season. And so the fig trees actually bloom twice, and they bring forth fruit twice. So often when you come to a fig tree, you'll see ripe fruit, and you'll see new fruit. They've still got a ways to develop. It's a great metaphor for marriage. If you develop fruit, there'll be things you can taste and enjoy in your relationship. But there's always fruit to be developed, fruit to be um, cultivated, weeds to be pulled in order to keep things moving in a godly direction. And one of the, the real gifts God gives to us when we're first married is a metaphor he uses here for their relationship, which is tender grapes. That we have a tender relationship, a tender heart toward each other. 
And sometimes over time, just the bruising into each other, the disagreements into each other, the, 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 the tenderness can begin to grow callous and cold. So one of the things we want to pray for is, God, keep my heart tender toward other people. And in the same way, if you're not here today to talk about marriage, this is why God makes a permanent commitment to us, by the way. Same way in marriage. Because he knows there's times we're going to pull away from him. It's going to feel like winter time. God, where are you? We're going to feel like we've fallen away through fall. And through the grace of God, he makes a permanent, we are eternally secure in his grace so that during the seasons of relationship, he wants us to know he's committed to us. He has a tender heart toward us, even when we ignore him, even when we push him away, even when we don't pursue him the way we should. So again, you see him talking about this hike they're going to go on. Give me a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair. Come away. He's just initiating relationship, not just in the bedroom. He's initiating her friendship means a lot, her time together. She wants to have, he wants to have companionship. That's what she wants her husband to pursue her with. So then while they're on this hike, uh, he says, Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the secret place of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And if you've been in the Middle East, there's all these wadis. And there are little places, little private places. So probably now, having gone on this hike, they find a little private place. And he looks her in the eye and they have this tender romantic moment. And they're probably making out in the rocks back there. Because that's pretty much what most of Israel looks like. So there's just this relationship they pursue. It's the emotional intimacy of their friendship, which leads to physical intimacy and kissing later on. Here's what's interesting. There's a, a uh, scientist, psychologist, who's done some studies. His name's Dr. Jeffrey Schloss. And there are new transmitters that God put in us. <clears throat> and I won't pronounce this right, but phrenophilamine. I'm sure that's right. And when you're first married, when you're first in a relationship, your body releases what this is called the attraction chemical. And it kind of, the thrill, the excitement just floods in. And that's what is kind of this attraction element that God designed in us to create relationships. However, more often than not, that chemical begins to wane between years four and year five. And what's interesting is if you look at almost all cultures in the United States and the world, there is often a pattern of divorce occurring in year four and five. Where people don't feel the same way. They say, well, I guess we've grown apart because that attraction chemical is no longer as dominant. What you don't know is if you make a permanent commitment to one another to let love go through its seasons, around year four and five, there's another chemical that begins to develop in your brain, and it's the attachment chemical, oxytocin. And as it begins to come, it's the same, the same chemical that a, a mother attaches to her child when, when a child is born, when they're breastfeeding. And so we move from attraction chemicals to attachment chemicals. And those attachment chemicals are much more bonding, they're deeper, and then, as you find out, for those who stay committed through difficult seasons, that attraction chemical comes back again and again and again. You can fall in love with each other all over again if you're committed to walking through those winter times and those fall times together. In fact, there's many people that don't. In fact, they get addicted to the thrill chemical, so they just trade spouses or, or never in long-term relationships because they just keep going back after that high rather than seeing the commitment of the longer, deeper commitment of not only attraction, but also attachment. Keep, <clears throat> keep fanning into flame. Keep prioritizing. Keep wooing one another. Secondly, our second love habit is to keep chasing foxes that ruin your vineyards. 
I told you the garden and the vineyard is both a metaphor for their bodies. Come enjoy the vineyard. Come enjoy the garden. It's also a metaphor for their relationship. And here it's just for their relationship. Now notice the language changes from you language or I language to us language. Let us, let us catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. So again, what he's saying here is our relationship is like a beautiful vineyard and it's got tender grapes and they are fragile and they are important. And we need to be careful not to let the foxes come in and stomp all over the grapes. So now we are responsible together to protect the vineyard. Let us protect our vines. So what are the foxes that destroy relationships? Dr. Gottman and the Gottman Research Company has done more research on marriage than anyone ever in human history. He says there are four foxes, there are four main things that will destroy a relationship. He calls them the four horsemen. I'm going to call them the four foxes. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Rather than bringing up complaints and concerns, which is totally legitimate in any relationship, we move to criticizing what they're doing, how they're doing it. It's just saying, hey, really, I prefer this. Could I talk about why this is important to me? We begin to criticize. And that fox will begin to tear your relationship apart. Then it moves to contempt. We begin to have contempt for our spouse, for who they really are. Not just what they do, which is irritating, but who they are. When this fox starts going through, it is hard to put it back in a cage. Thirdly is defensiveness. Your spouse brings up a, a need or a concern or, or something that bothered them. And you immediately say, well, yeah, I can't believe you're being so angry at me. I can't believe you're talking to me like that. Well, you know, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't done this. And we sound like kindergartners most of the time when we argue. And your spouse has been trying to bring something up to you, but you're so defensive that that person can't talk to you. And that defensiveness becomes a fox that blocks your relationship. Then the last one is stonewalling, which is one person in a relationship is like, hey, when are you going to get to that? We've talked about this several times. Well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Stonewalling by withdrawing affection, stonewalling by being unforgiving, stonewalling by, by not initiating something you said you would do. So it's so important for us to begin to say this is our relationship and we need to keep the foxes out. So together, if we see these foxes in our vineyard, we need to together say, whether it's in you or in me, listen, you're going to save a lot of money. These things will take your money through divorce. These things will take your happiness. Let us together commit to the vineyard and go after these foxes. Sometimes that, in the context of the bedroom, is demanding, the Bible says. You don't demand of your spouse. It also says you don't withhold from your spouse in, first, uh, in Corinthians 7. It says that you need to initiate repair attempts. I'm sorry, I own it. And if you don't, that's a fox. But if you hold a grudge and you don't forgive someone who has asked for, for forgiveness, that's also a fox. I've seen unforgiveness destroy relationships. Another tool that I've handed out over the years and talked about occasionally is something that's very, very helpful in trying to keep your vineyard from being hurt by foxes <laughs> is chasing foxes in a bad way. <laughs> These are the stages to an affair if you're chasing a fox. And what's so interesting, I've been using this in my own life for 30 years, I've shared this many, many times, is look at how an affair typically happens. Stage one, readiness. You're leaning away from your marriage. 
because it's winter time, because it's the fall, you're leaning away from it. Secondly, you become aware of another person. It's not romantic yet, you're just aware of them. They've kind of got a neat personality, uh, you really like them, you just notice them. Then you find yourself in comparison mode. You begin to compare your spouse's weaknesses against that person's perceived strengths. Who's going to win that game? You know your spouse's weaknesses better than anyone, and you're comparing it to the person that you're fantasizing is probably amazing all the time because you don't know them real well. So then there's an innocent meeting. You guys both just happen to run into each other or sit next to each other at the bleachers watching your kid's softball game. You both were there at the swim meet. It just so happened at a business meeting, you're sitting near each other. It was, but truly was innocent. But next time you come to that soccer match, next time you go to that swim meet, it's intentional. You purposely sit next to that person. And then the game is over or the business meeting's over, and now there's public lingering. It's just nothing romantic going on. You're just hanging out with that person in a public setting. Then you notice that everyone else has left and you're still talking to that person after the soccer game. Private lingering. Then you move to the next stage, which is purposeful isolating. Hey, you know what? We're working on this business project together. I got to grab dinner. You got to grab dinner. How about just the two of us go out to dinner to work on work? And then the next time it's like, hey, you know, I so enjoyed having dinner with you the other day. I don't have any work going on, but you know what? How about we grab coffee at that same place again? And now it's personal isolating. And you can just see the foxes are, are, are let loose in the vineyard and there hasn't even been any physical touch yet. Then it's after that lunch and after that meeting, it's, it's an affectionate embrace. Let me give you a hug, which then leads eventually to passion embracing. This tool, I have had so many people over the years say, oh my goodness, I'm already on stage six. I use this as a chance for God to convict me. I don't think I've ever been past stage three, but I've definitely made it to stage one, two, and three in my marriage. I want God to convict me and nudge me to reprioritize and chase those foxes here, here, and here. Not here and here. Chasing foxes to protect your relationship. So important. And having done that, apparently they both in this kind of dream sequence, not a dream sequence, kind of imagination she has in her mind, they catch these foxes. And then Mrs. Solomon says, the beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And having prioritized working through some conflict together, their romance is rekindled again. My body is yours and your body is mine. And just like flocks come down from a mountain, they would nibble on the lilies that would be there in the Middle East. The word lily here, if you look at chapter 5 of Song of Solomon, she refers to her lips as lilies. So it kind of starts here, but it ends there. She says, I want you to come and nibble on my lips the way the flock nibble on the lilies. Which we're like, that's weird. Well, you're not a shepherd, right? These are, these are people who grew up in a shepherding culture. It's basically, I want to make out with you. I want you to nibble on my lips. I want to kiss you. I want to be near you. I want to make out tonight. We worked through some foxes together. And having worked through that conflict and reprioritized each other, it, again, love is re-evoked again. And then she says to her beloved, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, which is kind of Hebrew for, we're going to stay up all night on this one. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag. I told you that's kind of her pillow talk for let's head to the bedroom. Like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethar. Now, it just sounds like they're going on a trip to the mountains. But all through this book, she talks about her body as spiced garden and as the spice mountains. 
So it's alluded to here, come enjoy the mountains, honey. We went on a hike, now we're going to go on a hike. Um, it gets really clear in chapter 8. Because at chapter 8, she's kind of being a little more graphic in her bedroom talk. She's like, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle, my young stag, on the mountains of spices. She's inviting him to come and enjoy her body. In fact, uh, there's a theological um, seminary from Dallas Theological Seminary. His name is Dr. Thomas Constantinople. He goes in and shows just how much of the language here that I didn't even go into really speaks to physical pleasure here. Those metaphors very clearly came out of the Middle Eastern culture there related to the time they're spending here in the bedroom, which is going to end this chapter with the two of them making love again. Now, it's interesting when it comes to chasing foxes. As pastors, we get to walk with people through lots of challenging times in their marriage. And almost every time in a relationship, there's one person who's more interested in fixing the foxes or catching the foxes than the other. So one person is usually dragging the other person to meet with the pastor, dragging the other person into, into counseling. And usually the other person is super spiritual. It sounds like this. I don't believe in counseling. I, I, don't, I only want Christian counselors. When we can find those, no, there's no good ones. And I have just seen so often people who are just stonewalling and defensive have all these spiritual excuses why they don't want to seek counsel. And what sounds like a, a spiritual decision is actually just arrogance and unteachable attitudes. And I tell you, you want a fox that will destroy your relationship? It's pride. God hates pride. The Bible says that we should seek out counsel the book of Proverbs says you need a man of understanding who can bring out the deep wells within you. You need a multitude of counselors. And I can think of several couples in my mind right now who just trying to help one of them deal with some foxes. And the biggest fox was the other person not being willing to address it because they were so defensive and so angry or so much stonewalling. So one of the greatest gifts that you can give your spouse. One of the greatest gifts you can give God is to say, God, I'm going to stop being defensive. I'm open to what your Holy Spirit wants to do to my life. And by the way, again, if you're not here to learn about marriage, those four foxes, Gottman says these are the four things that happen between you and your mom, you and your employees, you and your boss. When you start going from just normal conflict in your, in your working relationship to starting to criticize what people do and presume the worst about them, then you begin to have contempt for them, not seeing anything good they ever do. You start stonewalling and just not, not doing what you said you'd do and departments start arguing with other departments. Then you get defensive. Whatever the other person says, you react to it. It just doesn't create healthy cultures. It doesn't help create healthy companies. It doesn't create healthy families. So this is stuff you can apply to any relationship, not just marriage. Thirdly, thirdly is how do we Third love habit is how do we keep prioritizing your marriage? And here we move into chapter 3. We have a dream sequence. And here we're going to see how fear often, and the fear of loss in particular, can really shake us up. It can really reprioritize us to what matters. So we're moving here from day 2, new love in the garden, to this dream sequence, overcoming fear of intimacy. And often we, we're not grateful for our spouses we don't express that gratitude. It's in our heart, but not on our tongue. And it's until something tragic occurs and there's a loss 
You ever had that dream? You wake up and, and your spouse had died or you lost a child and you wake up you're just sobbing or in panic because you, you felt like you lost them and it suddenly reminded you how often you need to really take every day, not take any day for granted? It's kind of what happens here. She has this dream that she loses her husband. So day three, the dream. By night on my bed... Now, I won't get into it, but the same thing here is the word bed here is a Hebrew word used five times in the Old Testament. It always speaks to intimacy and romance and pleasure. And, and you know, the Greeks used to talk about eros love, which is that romantic, physical pleasure love. This word is always associated with that. Even though you don't really see that occur until the end. But there is this idea of, of that here. So at night, she has this dream. And in the dream, I sought the one I loved. Hey, honey, where are you? I sought him, but I couldn't find him. I will rise now, I said. I'm going to go into the city. I'm going to go in the streets. I'm going to go in the squares. I'm going to do whatever it takes to find him. Whatever it is to find where he's lost. I missed him. He's gone. This is the moment you suddenly get a health report and you find out your spouse has cancer. There's been a car accident. All of a sudden you wonder, oh my goodness. And everything Everything gets reprioritized. You didn't have time to call. You didn't have time for a date night. You didn't have time to prioritize their needs, whether it's the needs for affection or needs for attention. But in that moment, everything gets reordered to say, this is the top priority. The fear of loss can help reprioritize us. She suddenly, she's willing to go anywhere and do anything to pursue him. I will seek out the one I love. And she'll say over again, the one I love, the one I love, the one I love. So I sought him, but I couldn't find him. So she brings other people in. Can you help me find him? And the watchmen who go around the city found me. Now this doesn't show up so much in this dream. But the watchmen become a metaphor for God's spirit convicting us and leading us and directing us. It's more conviction in the dream sequence that mirrors this when we get to it in about three weeks. But just I did, the watchmen kind of represent God. So while she's fearing having lost her spouse, the watchmen show up and she says, Have you seen the one I love? Almost like, hey, can you tell me how to find or reconnect or get back into the place I need to be? And having talked to the watchman, she says, scarcely had I passed by them, it's like they're come and gone, that I found him. It was this encounter with the watchman and reprioritizing the search for him that she found, again, the one I love. And then I held him and would not let go until I brought him into the house of my mother, into the chamber of her, of her who conceived me. Which again sounds weird. I, I missed you, I lost you, I reprioritized you. Let's head to mom's house and make out. <laughs> but again, it's again this sign of <clears throat> having remembered each other. Remember that we've taken each other for granted. Remember that we haven't been thankful to each other. Having been refound, they reprioritize each other. And the language here again is very, very clear that this is in a, an intimate way. Now, it's kind of like saying the Bible so esteems physical love and marriage that we can even do this in mom and dad's house. <laughs> and, and it's pure, and it's wonderful, and it's personal, and it's intimate. It's just a beautiful picture that having gone through this time of loss and refining each other, they want to come be intimate with their souls, but also with their bodies. So I brought you into the house of my mother, into the chamber, and again, the word here is definitely the bedroom, and, and the bedroom not just to hang out and chat, but to enjoy each other's bodies. But they're back at, at home in this dream sequence, and, and they're making love together. And then she says, I charge you, O daughters of Israel. 
So now she talks back. Remember, the whole, the whole book is a giant Broadway show. Whenever she talks to daughters of Israel, it's like the, the chorus. Oh, daughters of Israel. She's talking to all of us. By the gazelles of the does of the field, do not awaken love until it pleases. And there's two applications here that the Hebrew scholars tell us. Number one, if you're not married, he's saying to those who are still virgins, hey, all of us, this passionate love gift from God is like a fire. Don't get it started too soon. Don't awaken love until it pleases. And love pleases, physical love and physical intimacy pleases to be in a permanent commitment called marriage. So, so yeah, make out, enjoy aspects of physical bodily love, but save the full expression of that to marriage. You do not awaken love too soon. You're playing with fire here, and that fire is designed by God to keep you warm, but you need to keep that fire in the fireplace of how God designed it with commitment. That's kind of the idea here. However, there's another application that comes right out of this verse, which the Hebrew scholars are very clear on, which she also kind of says it to her husband several times in the book. She kind of says, hey, do not awaken love until it pleases which is another way of saying, let's not get started kissing and smooching until we can make sure we're in an environment that we can bring each other to full pleasing or full satisfaction. That's why Christian idea of physical intimacy is a very generous other-centered one. I want to bring pleasure to you and make sure you're satisfied. And I want to bring pleasure to you and make sure you're satisfied. How do we both prioritize each other and through that we're both fulfilled? So do not awaken. Almost like she's saying the pillow talk, talk might be, hey, don't get something started you can't finish, buddy. Let's make sure we can bring this all the way to satisfaction or pleasing. That's the idea here. Now, notice again how overcoming fear led to reconnection, which led to <clears throat> their physical intimacy. So I want to talk a little bit about that. So I've shared this tool with many people over the years. And this I've shared in our, in our Home Depot, our God's Home Info series I've done with marriages The human brain only holds so much emotion. And so we are designed to need affection, to need intimacy, to need appreciation. When those needs go unmet, you want to share your idea with your spouse, they kind of brushed you off, you feel loss or disappointment. You tried to initiate making love, the person pushed you away and didn't necessarily say, hey, we'll prioritize that later, you're disappointed. Then you're angry. I can't believe you disrespected me. I can't believe you don't care about the things I'm working on. And then it leads to fear. Is this ever going to change? Is he ever going to get me? Is she ever going to realize how important physical intimacy is to me? Is he ever going to realize how important it is to comfort me in emotional intimacy? And at some point in our heart, we say something stupid, we do something stupid, we feel the guilt of having not done the right thing and not reacted the right way. We feel that condemnation in our heart. It just starts pushing all the positive emotions out. But the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear in the book of John. That there's no fear in love. That when we begin to see fear in our spouses, that fear is almost always coming from anger, which is coming from from disappointment or loss, that they had a need that we're not prioritizing. So I put in your notes today a list I'm going to put up here, which is the top ten intimacy needs. And I want you to try and identify your top three needs and your spouse's top three. And watch what happens. It might be acceptance. Someone accepting you and loving you when when you haven't been your best, when you've been on your bad behavior. Instead of them saying, well, you're crabby today, (laughs) loving you without saying you're crabby today. Affection. The need for non-sexual and sexual touch. Appreciation. 
a whole sentence, I notice you did this today and it means a lot to me. Well, when you do something and you're hoping for appreciation, you don't get it. Instead, you feel instead that connection you longed for, you actually have the loss of that connection and the anger. Well, how, how could you not appreciate me? And then you have that fear. But perfect love is saying, God, you love me. You appreciate me when I'm not real appreciative. You respect me when I'm not really respectable. You accept me when I wasn't very acceptable. And that's why this whole series is also about Jesus. Because the only way to do this with your employees, do this with your kids, do this with your spouse, is to realize that God is the conduit. God meets my needs with this kind of love. And I extend that to my spouse. And I want you to look through this list. Attention. Comfort. You've heard your spouse say, stop trying to fix it. But what she really means, or what he really means is, I need comfort. And saying, I guess it was a tough day with the kids. Well, you know what you should have done? That's not comfort. I'm not saying it's not well-intended. You're trying to be helpful. But if you say, oh, the goal is comfort. Oh, that's what I'm aiming at. I want to give you three goals to meet your spouse's needs, to speak to that, to get that fear level down. Like we see in, in, the, in Mrs. Solomon here. You get the fear level down because the next time you share your idea and instead of the person brushing you off or saying I don't have time to listen, they say I want to hear what's going on. Wow, that sounds really tough. Instead of having disappointment and anger, your fear level goes down. When the fear level goes down, there's more room for positive emotions. Rather than being filled with, with fear and guilt and condemnation, when you begin to meet each other's needs, oh my goodness, I felt so appreciated today. Well, I love the fact that we held hands when we were watching that movie because I have a need for affection. It meant so much to me the way you spoke to me in a respectful way. Even when we disagreed, I could still tell you cared about my opinion. I feel delightful. I feel instead of anger, I feel meaningful. I feel joyful, not fearful about our relationship. Instead of wondering, oh my goodness, are we going to make it? I start feeling hopeful and faithful. You see... It doesn't take much to take a hurting relationship and bring healing or a, or, a, or a good marriage to become great. It all comes down to will we take the conduit of how God meets our needs and will we then prioritize our spouse's needs? And by the way, again, if you're not here to learn about spouses, if you see bad behavior coming out of your employees or your brother and sister or your nephew, it's the same thing. How can I figure out what's going on inside them how can I speak to the needs God gave to them? And how can I grow in being the kind of giver, appreciator, and lover that God is to me? So how about you? Will you allow marriage to make you holy? God continues fanning the flame for us. He doesn't just say, hey, you accept me in your life, I'll see you in heaven. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps wooing us. God sees the conflict, the sins, the temptations, the selfishness in our life. He keeps chasing those foxes. He brings the watcher, the Holy Spirit, into your life to say, hey, we need to work on that. That's going to really destroy the vineyard. we got to protect this. And God keeps prioritizing and reprioritizing you. And because he's done that for you, let's go and do that for the people we love. Let's pray. Father, teach us how to love the way you love. Help us to be generous with our words, generous with our affection, generous with our appreciation to develop relationships that make us holy, but also make us happy. In Jesus' name, amen.